Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Trade wars with China. Does anybody win? Let's find out from David Kotak. He is the chairman and the chief exec- chief investment officer of Cumberland Advisors. They are based in Sarasota, Florida. But uh, David is uh, joining us here in our 1130 studios in New York. He's also the co-author of the book Adventures in Muniland. All right, David Kotak, thank you for being here. How about Adventures in Trade War Land? Does anybody come out a winner? Oh, my gosh, no. It's a relative loss game, and it is a different kind of a game, Pim. We spent the last 30 years in monetary, credit, banking, Federal Reserve, central banks. We dealt with linear-type programs, revert to the mean, predictability, numeracy, numeracy. This is a shock business, We're not used to this. We've got market agents who haven't had to deal with these kinds of shocks for 30 or 40 years. Now you look around the street, half of them weren't born the last time we had something like this. This is a big deal and it's not good. If this is such a big deal, why is the S&P 500 trading at such elevated levels? Try to make that statement with six stocks removed. Defang the fang, and we can see what happens with Facebook when you defang a tooth. Defang the fang, and look at what the market's been doing. Look at the breath shrinking, new high list shrinking. My view, personal opinion. That's why we've got you. Okay. The economy peaked in the second quarter of this year with the 4% growth rate if you had to pick a month it probably was april or may because that was the time when you had trade bluster rhetoric but you didn't have actual now we have actual you open up the wall street journal editorial today and what do you see the list of the growing bureaucracy you see companies begging for relief and being denied What else do you see? You go to Maine. I just came back from Maine. 4,500 lobstermen, family businesses, little businesses, a few million in revenue, six, eight employees, are in a lobster trade war with retaliatory tariffs. Some of them are saying, we're going to lose a third of our revenue. We're going to lay off people. The banks that lend to them are saying, come in here, let's talk about what we got to do with your loans. This is an ugly Anecdote by anecdote, shock by shock, and we're only seeing the beginning. If we're only seeing the beginning and the stock market is supposed to be a forward-looking mechanism, why are investors not looking at those lobstermen in Maine, the cranberry growers in Massachusetts, and the steel makers like Al- well, Alcoa Aluminum, they wanted an exemption on some yeah. of those import tariffs because they wanted to import aluminum that came from their own operations overseas. Well, I, why does the stock market do what it does? We had a conversation. More buyers than sellers. Well, there you go. So I, I said, remember 1987, new Fed chair, Greenspan, worried about currency exchange rates, 
raises interest rates, market keeps going up, hits a wall in August, and two months later, it's down 20%. We've had a bear market that has been devastating. Why did the stock market then go up in June to go down in September? I don't know what the stock market's going to do. I'll tell you what we did in our portfolios. Tell us. Cash reserves, we have them. How much? Domestic focus depends on the portfolios. It can be as high as a third, as low as 10 15%. Depends on the structure, but U.S. focus has a cash reserve. Now, what do you do with the rest? Domestic, small mid-cap, focus locally, reduce exposure to the international brouhaha, and hope, by the way, you can restore it because they're going to have a settlement and not a long-term trade war. And we don't know which it's going to be now. I confess, every time I hear the word hope, when I hear about money... It's not a strategy. Makes, right, it, it makes me worried a little, yeah. a little bit. You, you talked about the cash portfolio, right? Ten to fifteen percent on the downs, on the low side, and maybe thirty percent a third for some other and, customer. It depends, and, and that's temporary. It's transitional, but it may be there for a while. What do you sell in order to raise that kind of capital? Well, we reduce the tech weight. We fortunately we came out of the ETFs that were heavy before Facebook blew up, and that kind of gave us a little gift. We didn't know. Take that was your profits, happen. pay your taxes, and be happy. You betcha. You know what? My grandfather taught me when I was a little boy: if you make a profit, say thank you, and you don't have to make the whole profit. And if you pay the tax, say thank you, because the rest of it is in your pocket. Given that advice from your grandfather, do you believe that investors are ignoring the fundamental geopolitical situation in favor of, oh, corporate earnings are going to continue to produce these incredible results? Well, I think you hit it right on the head. Right on the head. We've had great earnings. We've got another round reporting off the second quarter of earnings. They're good. Most companies beat expectations. Pretty good result. We've had a good quarter. Now, did we have a good quarter? And is this a continuation of a trend? Maybe. I don't think so. Did we accelerate business into the second quarter? Did we borrow from the future because of the trade effects? Do we not see the dislocations from the trade effects yet? Are they coming? Do they affect credit? Do we get some inflation from it? Do we get growth slowed down? All those things line up. That's not healthy for continuing earnings being robust. Let's say a client calls and three months have gone by. Stocks have still increased in value. Does David Kotak say, look, just because you didn't make the last three months doesn't mean that what's coming is going to get better. Yeah, I mean, you say it, they don't want to hear it. I understand. That's my point. How do you educate people? How do people take that? Because you know that what happens. People spend a lot of time looking at the downside, and they just complain about not making it all. Pim, we had a great run, a great market. No one gets 100% of a market. We know that. We've talked about that over the years. So you say, okay, it's okay to put a little dry powder in the bank. You don't have to sell everything. But you have to put dry powder in the bank. And there are times when you have to admit, and I'm admitting it, we don't know. We haven't had the kinds of issues on the plate 
driven by politics, where a trade policy is driven by a man named Peter Navarro, who promised there'll be no retaliation, remember? Who promised we won't have any of these effects. Said it looking into the camera. And he's got the president's ear. And who knows who's got the president's ear on the latest tweet. This is bizarre leadership. And the country still permits it. Thank you very much. David Kotak, Chairman, Chief Investment Officer, Cumberland Advisors, based in Sarasota, Florida. President Donald Trump has warned countries against doing business with Iran as sanctions kick back in. Here to tell us more about the implications for world oil markets is Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting and an expert on energy and Middle East politics. Dr. Wald, thank you very much for being with us. Can you explain what effect the sanctions will have on Iran's oil industry? Right now, the sanctions that are being implemented are on purchases of U.S. dollars, purchases of gold, and also particularly the automobile industry. And that means that any person or institution that's helping the government of Iran to purchase U.S. currency would be subject to sanctions. And that impacts the oil industry because most oil transactions are done in dollars. Now, for quite some time now, a lot of Iran's transactions have actually not been occurring in dollars. They've been using euro. Uh, and also some local currencies. So right now, we're not looking to see uh, a whole lot of impact on the Iranian oil industry aside from what we've already seen. But what we do need to look at is the sanctions that are coming into effect on November 5th. And those were actually clarified in this most recent executive order. And that will be sanctions against anyone or any institution that assists sponsors or provides goods or services in support of the National Iranian Oil Company. And so everyone who is right now engaged in doing business with Iran in terms of oil is going to be watching how the U.S. implements this round of sanctions to see and to make their plans in advance of November 5th. Okay, let's see if we can describe two different scenarios, one having to do with Iran's domestic economy. Do they have refining capacity? They do. It's not great. Uh, Part of the issue during the first round of sanctions, the earlier ones before the JCPOA, was that they were unable to get parts and supplies and things and infrastructure parts needed to um, fix their declining refineries and to put in more refining capacity. Apparently, they have made strides in producing some of these things domestically, but they're not yet ready. So it will affect Iran's domestic refining capacity, which will have an impact on the Iranian economy. Okay. The second part is to which country does Iran export the most oil? Is it South Korea? Is it China? Right now it's China. They are the number one purchaser of Iranian oil. And what will the sanctions do to Chinese oil imports? Well, that is the big question that we're all looking to see what happens. Right now, China has said it has no intention, regardless of these sanctions, of decreasing its Iranian 
oil imports. However, it has said it's not planning on increasing them, which is actually a pretty big signal that it's um, that it is taking these sanctions somewhat seriously. The big question is, how is it going to import that oil? Is it simply going to just ignore the sanctions? Will it have to pass most of its uh, funds and things through? Uh, the, uh, there's one particular bank in China that uh, they used last time that doesn't really do business with American interests. And so they can use that bank to uh, take care of those financial transactions. The problem is that with the amount of oil that China is importing from Iran these days, they that bank may not be able to handle all those transactions. And we may see an involuntary decline from China. Now, there has been a report that the total export volume on various types of oil-carrying sh- uh, ships, Aframaxes, Suez Maxes, and those very large crude carriers, that the exports from Iranian ports have fallen about 7% in July. Do you agree with that? Yes, and we are seeing that, particularly um, India has their refineries in India, not the state-owned ones, but some of the other ones like Naraya, which is owned by uh, Rosneft, have been cutting their imports of Iranian oil. So that does match with what we're seeing. Also, South Korea has been looking, uh, South Korea imports a lot of Iranian condensate, and they've been looking at other options, including light oil from Kuwait and oil from uh, condensate from the United States. All right. Some other customers include Japan. What do you believe the Japanese refiners will do? I do think that when when it comes down to it, the Japanese refiners will not continue to purchase Iranian oil um, if they do not receive a waiver from the U.S. Uh, It seems right now it's unlikely they're going to get a waiver. They've asked for one. The State Department has been asked about the status of that. They've decided they're not commenting on these case-by-case situations. But given the language and the stances that we've seen coming from the Trump administration, it does not seem likely that Japan will get a waiver for uh, to continue to purchase Iranian oil. Explain what is Turkey's relationship to Iranian oil? Turkey is a, is a fairly large importer of Iranian oil right now, and Turkey and the United States are not on good terms at this moment. And so Turkey has said they're going to continue to purchase this Iranian oil. Now, the question again is how, because how are they going to ensure the tankers full of Iranian oil? How are they going to purchase that oil? Uh, we may see them have to decrease their um, legitimate purchases, but we may see an increase in um, smuggling or in, in illegal legitimate purchases of Iranian oil. Iran and Turkey share a border. Now, there's no pipeline that connects Iran and Turkey because it was blown up by the Kurds, but we could see some trucking going on there. Thank you very much. Dr. Ellen Wald is the president of Transversal Consulting and also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. We consult with Damien Sassauer, our fixed income strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, when we want to know anything about what's going on in the world of emerging markets. And Damien, good to have you with us. Uh, Is Turkey an emerging market or is it a cratering market at this point? (laughs) 
Yeah, I know. You'd, you'd, I mean, now the comparisons, there's really only one comparison to make, and you just made it. It's Venezuela. You know, if you look at local currency 10-year yields, if you look at their, their dollar equivalent yield, if you look at the performance of their currency and their equity markets, Venezuela is really the only one you can even make a comparison to, in fact. And, but the thing, the big difference is Venezuela has oil. <laughs> Turkey doesn't have oil. It just seems to have a an massive ongoing problem. Yeah, what is going on? First, why don't you set out what are the issues yeah. that Turkey faces and- what are the potential solutions, if any? Right. Well, I mean, Turkey's fiscal priorities are not aligned with the country's sovereign balance sheet, right? I mean, they have um, they've extracted a ton of funding from the West, from the U.S., from Europe. Yet uh, President Erdogan's pivoted away from them, um, and that's really at the root of this. And so, the market effectively has lost pretty much all confidence in the central bank and its policy mechanisms that are in place, such as interest rates and so forth, to um, to 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 basically arrest the decline in uh, in the country's, you know, asset base. And so right now, insofar as I can tell, it looks like capital controls appear inevitable. And and that's never a good thing for an emerging market, especially one where inflation is running at 16 percent per year. The current account deficit's over six percent now. Um, its external debt load is upwards of 41, 42 percent of total debt. Um, PMI fell to its lowest level in May, although it's recovered a bit. I mean, we're just, uh, it, it's a bad situation. And so, you know, from where we sit, you know, there's a few other things that kind of come to mind. And the first thing that might help mitigate the issue is if, if, if President Erdogan in Turkey were to re-engage with the U.S. Because right now we're having some diplomatic issues, and I'll just kind of run you through them. Um, you know, Turkey's refused to release um, Pastor Andrew Brunson, also a NASA scientist um, who's who's been locked up since 2016. Um, we have uh, Halk Bank, one of the largest banks in Turkey that helped uh, Iran evade U.S. sanctions on oil some time ago, and we had uh, Turkey's decision to recently purchase a missile system from Russia, really turning their backs on NATO. So that's from the U.S. side. From the Turkish side, you've got, you know, um, Turkey looking for the U.S. to extradite Fethullah Gulen, which is an Islamic cleric whom is a former ally of Erdogan, who he blames for the coup in 2016. And you have the U.S. arming Kurdish forces, um, uh, you know, basically against ISIS. Um, but, you know, basically that is uh, Erdogan views the Kurds as, as terrorists. So, so you have these diplomatic divides and it's really just weighing on the economy and the people of Turkey. And, you know, something needs to be done in order for, for, uh, for us to arrest the declines. So let's let me see if I can get this. They have debts they cannot repay. They have a currency that is dwindling in value. Yes. And there is radio silence from the government. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so we do have a delegation of Turkish officials supposedly coming to Washington in the next two days. And one would hope that would be the beginning of a appeal to the IMF, perhaps, for a line of credit or a loan or something of that nature to sort of give some confidence to to their existing creditors that, hey, maybe there's going to be Would the United States backing. have to approve any disbursement from the International Monetary Fund to help Turkey? W one would think the U.S. would be heavily involved in those negotiations, absolutely. Um, you would think that perhaps there would be an appeal to the White House and to uh, President Trump's administration in that type of a, a scenario. But, you know, right now, um, it's anyone's guess if they're even going to make it here. <laughs> and so, you know, that is kind of where we are. I mean, it's just, um, you know, it's been radio silence, quite frankly, from Erdogan and from the Central Bank of the Republic of Turkey, right? And and that that radio silence is giving a lot of people room for pause. Let, let's just assume that you get a blank slate and they call Damien Sassauer and say, all right, give us three things that we ought to do by the end of the week to start to 
put this on a more reliable and sustainable recovery? Yeah, there, the, the three things that I would do is I'd re I'd, anything and everything I can to reinstall central bank confidence. That's the most important Raise thing. Raise interest rates. I, I don't think you can even, I, I, I don't think it's the level of interest rates. I think it's just about the central bank's independence, which as we've discussed here on this show before, has been called into question now that Erdogan's put his son-in-law at the head of the finance ministry. Basically, he's controlling the economy so right now. So maybe put someone else in charge of the central bank. That we need help. independence. That's okay, the first that's, order of business. The second would two? be they need to tighten fiscal spending. They need to take structural reforms. They they have a lot of debt. They need stop to- Stop spending money. Stop spending money. Exactly. Okay. And the third would be- yeah, I think they need to go and appeal to the IMF. They need to secure some sort of backup facility in place to help arrest. Uh, you Any know, the idea f- how much? Um, I have no idea how much, and I have no idea. A lot. I, well, I don't know if it's so much the number again. It's just the confidence that hey, they're now appealing to multilateral institutions for for assistance, and they realize that their economy is in a bad way, and they need to do something about it. And you know, look, we like. I, I mean, look, most most investors in emerging market debt, they like. IMF-backed sovereigns. So, you know, we would like to see that happen as well. Thank you very much. Damien Sassauer, as always, expert when it comes to emerging markets. He's our fixed income strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, talking about Turkey and its uh, dire uh, economic situation. Let's turn our attention to the connection between wildfires in California and the utilities in California. Here to tell us all about it is Kit Connellich. She is our senior industrials and utilities analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Kit, thank you very much for joining me. Maybe just explain to people that it is not just the current wildfires that have been affecting companies like Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E. This is something that has lingered from last year's wildfire season, and it is continuing, unfortunately, this year. Absolutely right. Uh, last year, there was an, an estimate of up to $15 billion in liabilities that PG&E ran up and maybe 3 or $4 billion that Edison International in the South uh, has pending. Nobody knows for sure what those numbers are like because- uh, all the lawsuits have not been filed, and they're going to take a long time. But the, you know, given the track record so far, uh, and given the likelihood the courts are sympathetic to victims, uh, big big potential problems already in the books for for PG&E and Edison, and of course, what's going on now, and what might go on next year. This had to do with assigning blame or responsibility for some of the fires, but there's also an issue having to do with laws, regulations in the state of California. Yeah, exactly. The utilities and investors feel like they're falling in the cracks here, that there's a a doctrine in California mainly in California, that the courts have upheld called inverse condemnation, which uh, holds that a utility is going to have to pay for any damages anybody suffers if the utility is even slightly involved, regardless of their fault. So the idea, uh, you know, broadly was somebody picks up the tab first and then you go and assign blame. Well, you know, by the time they get around to assigning it, investors are legitimately afraid that 
nobody's going to give the money back to the utilities. And that's the, the huge threat there is that the utilities have these multi-billion dollar liabilities just lingering and eventually having to be paid. We know that PG&E currently pays no dividend. Correct. They've been trying to conserve cash. Yep. What's the likelihood that PG&E has to seek bankruptcy protection? I view it as a strategic threat at this point. I don't think that they're, in my view, that they uh, you know, are an imminent cash uh, danger the way they were in the energy crisis in 01, for example, uh, because a lot of these decisions about liabilities haven't been made yet. However, they are going to happen in the future. And I think uh, pg and correctly is telling people, we're going to go bankrupt if this continues someday. And it's up to us when we file. And they're trying to make the state legislature make some decisions about protecting us from catastrophic losses that make no sense because you need a utility uh, that can operate financially. PG&E shares have lost about 40% of their value since October of last year. Does that figure into the back and forth between PG&E and state regulators? Are they able to kind of use that as a backdrop and say, look, this is what's happening. And as you just said, they do need a public utility. There's no question that the the utility managers and investors go to the public authorities and say, We're, we've taken our hits. You know, it's not all our fault. Even, even in the findings by the fire authorities, yeah, we have some blame, but other people have other blame. And some of it is just fires start and they burn. And it's not, you know, because we have f- wires around doesn't mean it was our fault. Um but at any rate, we can't go bankrupt. It makes no sense. Don't force us into that position. And we've done what we can by cutting our dividend out completely. Uh, give you about 20 seconds. What is next? What should we look forward? We have two things going on. One, the, the big uh, event should be by the end of August. The legislature in California will have to make a decision on whether they get rid of inverse condemnation some way or not, and that could play into PG&E deciding about bankruptcy. The other is, in the near term, the biggest fire from last year, the Tubbs fire, uh, has a decision to be made by the Cal Fire Authority, the firefighting agency that puts out a report. Thanks very much. Kit Connellidge is our senior industrials and utilities analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Knows all about the business and always appreciate you stopping by and enlightening us. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.